the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to The Dan Proft Show. Follow us at danproftshow.com, on social media, at Dan Proft, at Dan Proft Show, uh, on Facebook is at Dan Proft as well. Uh, I mean, excuse me, at Dan Prof Show. Uh, Dan Prof, Dan Prof Show. You know, you, you use one of those two and you'll get uh, me wherever I exist on social media. I wanted to start the show. Look, you, you all know that uh, social interaction has essentially been banned for the next at least 30 days in America. Uh, every professional sports league is uh, shutting down universities, school systems, uh, talk of gathering, well, not to, more than talk in places like Illinois and Washington State, gatherings of more than 250 people. Uh, there's talk of uh, more school closures at the K through 12 level. There's talk of uh, emergency powers to state and local units of government to shut down bars and restaurants, uh, conventions, con- yeah, NRA convention called off, concerts. So you know all that. So um, let me just pull back for a second rather than prattling on like everybody else t- telling you how to wash your hands. How about just a little bit of a philosophical perspective on this crisis at this time in America? Uh, It seems to me there's um, a couple of choices presented. Uh, One is illustrated by Peggy Noonan in the Wall Street Journal. And, you know, generally, even when I disagree, I I enjoy Peggy Noonan. Uh, The other is from C.S. Lewis. And uh, I know that's not a fair fight, C.S. Lewis versus Peggy Noonan. It's not a fair fight, C.S. Lewis versus versus almost anybody. And uh, C.S. Lewis, well, C.S. Lewis died uh, uh, almost 60 years ago, Dan. Wait. Yeah. And C.S. Lewis's comments on so many topics uh, couldn't be more relevant in present day. His relevance to present day, C.S. Lewis really knows no bounds. But let's start with Peggy Noonan. Peggy Noonan, don't panic, quote unquote, is rotten advice. Uh, She points out the failures of the response so far. Testing in the U.S. has been wholly inadequate. Uh, History actually may see uh, may come to see this as the great scandal of the epidemic, she writes. Uh, behind closed doors, one physician used by Congress said 70 to 150 million Americans will be infected. A Harvard epidemiologist Mark Lipsitch estimated 20 to 60 percent of adults worldwide might catch the disease. Now, again, uh, those numbers, those projections, as uh, stark as they are, uh, in the range of what occurred with the H1N1 virus in 2009. And again, if you're old enough to have lived through 2009, think back in your mind and compare and contrast the response, the coverage, the response, the level of hysteria, the level of cancellations. Uh, She uh, goes on to Peggy Noonan to talk about the biggest immediate challenge, local health authorities offering little practical information how to, hand, how to handle patients or receive personal protective equipment, 
uh, although that personal protective equipment is wildly overstated in terms of its effectiveness, the masks and the gloves and whatnot. Uh, worry that local hospitals aren't ready and aren't readying for a surge in patients. Uh, and this, again, is where you rely on the common sense realism of the American people. Just because I uh, feel under the weather or have a cold doesn't mean I should call 911, doesn't mean I should rush to the emergency room. Uh, it doesn't mean I need to queue up for the coronavirus test immediately if it is not serious enough that, for example, I'm having trouble breathing. You know, trusting the American people to use common sense more so than you get from those uh, on cable news desks or in public office. That's where my the weight of my trust goes, I'll tell you that. Um, but she goes on, so this don't panic issue. Now it's time to lose the two most famous phrases of the moment. One is don't panic. The other is abundance of cautions, uh, abundance of caution. Don't panic is what nervous, defensive people say when someone warns of coming trouble. They don't want to hear it. So their message is don't worry like a coward. Be blithely unconcerned like a brave person. Uh, she compares it to, uh, you know, the captain of the Titanic. Captain, there appears to be an iceberg. Don't panic. Full steam ahead. Uh, a bit of an unfair comparison. I mean, I get that maybe. Uh, there's some element of that where people who say don't panic, usually they're saying it in response to complete hysteria that is not proportionate to the threat and frankly is unproductive in terms of what you could do to address the threat. I think that's more what you, where you get the don't panic or on the flip side, uh, abundance of caution, um, abundance of caution, Ted Cruz quarantining himself after interacting with the person test, who tested positive for coronavirus at the CPAC conference, announcing he's quarantining himself out of abundance of caution. Um, the, I mean, she, she sort of nitpicks on that saying they're not, that's not an abundance of caution. That's reasonable and realistic caution. Yeah, I know, but that's what we mean. We, we don't panic. Uh, in the current atmosphere, she writes, is a way of shutting up people who are using their imaginations as a protective tool. No, actually, it's not. Not generally. Not generally. It's saying respond proportionate to the threat. Worry about what you can control. Ask reasonable questions. Lodge reasonable criticisms if you want. But running around suggesting end times uh, only talking about the numbers that could be that are infected, could be infected and not connecting them to the consequences of infection for the wide swath of people, not discussing those who were infected, uh, even were hospitalized or quarantined and have thus been and has subsequently been released because uh, the virus passed. Not providing all the contextual information including Dr. Tony Fauci, who said, yeah, America is not set up for the kind of testing that you're seeing in other countries. And this is a failure. And this is a problem that we're trying to address in real time. But also saying there's too much reliance on tests. We have to address both sides of Fauci's arguments, not just one. That's what don't panic means. It also means don't obsess. It doesn't mean be blithely ignorant of what's happening. It doesn't mean be unconcerned. It doesn't mean conjure up conspiracy theories. It means don't allow it to dominate your entire existence. Not a C.S. Lewis. So there's the Peggy Noonan column. 
don't panic is rotten advice. I guess in the sense that she means it, but I think hers is a redefinition of what most people mean when they're saying don't panic or when they're decrying the uh, Chiron induced hysteria they see on cable TV. What did C.S. Lewis say? 72 years ago in his piece on living in an atomic age, 1948, on living in an atomic age. So as I read this excerpt, just replace coronavirus everywhere he mentions atomic bomb and see if this choice is, as Peggy Noonan says, about eliminating the phrases she doesn't like or the connotation she imputes on them. See if this doesn't meet the reason and realism are good. There's something else that's good. Uh, being a little less self-regarding. Having a little, little bit broader metaphysical perspective. C.S. Lewis. In one way, we think a great deal too much of the atomic bomb. How are we to live in an atomic age? I'm tempted to reply, why, as you would have lived in the 16th century when the plague visited London almost every year, or as you would have lived in a Viking age when raiders from Scandinavia might land and cut your throat any night, or indeed, as you all are already living in an age of cancer, an age of syphilis, an age of paralysis, an age of air raids, an age of railway accidents, an age of motor accidents. In other words, do not let us begin by exaggerating the novelty of our situation. Believe me, dear sir or madam, you and all whom you love were already sentenced to death before the atomic bomb was invented. And quite a high percentage of us are going to die in unpleasant ways. We had indeed one very great advantage over our ancestors anesthetics, but we still have, but we have that still, it is perfectly ridiculous to go about whimpering and drawing long faces because the scientists have added one more chance of painful and premature death to a world which already bristled with such chances and in which death itself was not a chance at all, but a certainty. This is the first point to be made. And the first action to be taken is to pull ourselves together. If we're all going to be destroyed by an atomic bomb, let that bomb, when it comes, find us doing sensible and human things. Praying, working, teaching, reading, listening to music, bathing the children, playing tennis, chatting to our friends over a pint and a game of darts. Not huddled together like frightened sheep and thinking about bombs. They may break our bodies. A microbe can do that but they need not dominate our minds. Exaggerating the novelty of our situation. The novelty is not present with coronavirus. The reaction is what's novel. This is Dan Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Uh, Now in terms of addressing the coronavirus pandemic, there's been uh, a lot of criticism lodged at the administration, Trump administration, for the failure to get testing kits distributed on a scale to start scaling testing and getting a handle on what the denominator may look like in terms of infections in America. But when it comes to uh, matters for which Trump was criticized when he first moved 
such as instituting a travel ban on China. Uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci, the point man for the CDC on infectious diseases, had this to say to the media. Do you think the travel ban has helped for that? I, I think it absolutely has. I believe if we did not do that with China early on. What about with Europe? When what, well, a lot of communication? All right. Well, I think that was a prudent choice. We spent a lot of time thinking about it, discussing it, about whether we should do it. And it was the right public health call. And here's the numerical reason why. If you look back early on, Chinese travelers who were infected seeded not only the United States, but countries in Europe, including Italy. If you look today at the majority of cases that are new cases, not old ones, new cases throughout the world, the majority of them are from Europe, Europe to other countries. If you look in the United States at states that have new cases, the majority of them are coming from that region. It was based on that that the travel restriction was suggested and accepted. Which is even why a Sandinistan, like the mayor of New York, Bill de Blasio, had to concede that he agrees with President Trump's decision for the temporary travel ban uh, from EU countries. Right. So I disagree with President Trump on many things, but I actually think the travel ban piece of his strategy has been, in many ways, warranted. It does not replace a proactive strategy by the United States of America to address our own issues uh, because we have our own community spread now. And it does not uh, forgive the fact that the basic supplies are not being organized by the federal government and the testing is not widespread. But the travel bans, I think, inherently make some sense. Travel bans make some sense, says Bill de Blasio. Uh, Joe Biden had a big presser to try and look presidential, uh, telling us what he would do if he were commander in chief uh, to address the spread of the coronavirus. Uh, his efforts, what his efforts to be would be to contain and mitigate uh, here's what he said about the travel bans, compare and contrast. But neither should we panic or fall back on xenophobia. Labeling COVID-19 a foreign virus does not displace accountability for the misjudgments that have been taken thus far by the Trump administration. Let me be crystal clear. The coronavirus does not have a political affiliation. It will infect Republicans, independents, and Democrats alike. And will not discriminate based on national origin, race, gender, or zip code. It will touch people in positions of power, as well as the most vulnerable in our society. And it will not stop. Banning all travel from Europe or any other part of the world may slow it, but as we've seen, it will not stop it. And travel restrictions based on favoritism and politics, rather than risk, will be counterproductive. Yeah, uh, well, there's disagreement there from Dr. Tony Fauci, uh, again, uh, regarded roundly as one of the brightest men on the planet with respect to dealing with infectious diseases. Travel bans, China and now EU have made some sense based on the spread, not based on political favoritism. With all due respect, Mr. Vice President Biden, and I know you single-handedly prevented Ebola from coming on shore, so you say, and you're still in process of fulfilling the task that uh, Barack Obama gave you to uh, cure cancer. So we'll look forward to that. But it wasn't political favoritism to exempt the U.K., which, frankly, is no longer a part of the EU. Remember Brexit? Uh, Additionally, uh, you're right, Mr. Vice President, that the virus knows no political affiliation, but it does know an origination. And so his effort to offer a sop to those woke 
uh, AOC types who want to suggest that uh, the terminology used is indicative of some sort of blame game or racism. Maybe it's just indicative of reality. I mean, I don't know how to tell Jim Acosta, so I'll let you do it. Uh, But a doctor, the director of the emergency department at Wuhan Central Hospital, uh, told Chinese magazine People, uh, Chinese, of course, the Chinese have a a people knockoff, right? Of course, that she posted an image of a diagnostic report, report on social network WeChat on December 30th, December 30th showing that the patient had a pneumonia infection caused by a SARS-like coronavirus. In her interview, she suggests local authorities in Wuhan, the center of the epidemic, missed an opportunity to issue a warning about an imminent outbreak before the virus spread and infected, you know, all the the 100,000-plus people it's infected, the 4,000-plus people who've died. Uh, This was published on Tuesday, but later deleted from the magazine's WeChat account, prompting internet users to repost the article on other platforms. Uh, This is a magazine that's state run, of course, like everything in China. Uh, Interesting, isn't it? So that's interesting. And uh, those suggesting that the uh, Wuhan coronavirus or China coronavirus, that is uh, racist, talking foreign is xenophobic. They're doing the bidding of the Chinese propagandists spreading their agitprop, as we talked about with Gordon Chang yesterday, and continues, the Chinese are trying to put this on America, America as the source and the global community spreader. When did patient zero begin in the U.S., said a Chinese foreign ministry spokesperson. It might be the U.S. Army who brought the epidemic to Wuhan. (laughs) Just flip the script, right? And you rinse and repeat it enough. And you get uh, some of the socialists in Congress and running for president to repeat it as well. And you'll gaslight at least some of the people. Oh, speaking of uh, using uh, 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 well, uh, identifiers for the virus, geographical identifiers for the virus. You know, there's this mentioned it yesterday, New York Times calling it the Wuhan virus in uh, reporting on the not too distant past. But see, when Trump says foreign or Republican says Wuhan virus or China coronavirus, that's verboten. That's a bridge too far. That's xenophobia. That's racism. How about this mashup of all the times CNN anchors used a modifier Wuhan virus? This is all happening at a time that we're starting to see a message shift here because you're starting to hear the Republicans, especially Trump Co., calling it the Wuhan or the Chinese coronavirus. They're looking for someone to blame. Concern is growing this morning over an outbreak of a new SARS-like virus in China. At least six people have died from the Wuhan coronavirus. The Wuhan coronavirus. The Wuhan coronavirus. The 34-year-old ophthalmologist diagnosed Saturday with the Wuhan coronavirus. The Wuhan virus. The Wuhan coronavirus. The Wuhan coronavirus. What more can you tell us about the similarities or differences between SARS and the Wuhan coronavirus? The Wuhan coronavirus. The Wuhan coronavirus in China. The Wuhan uh, coronavirus. The Wuhan coronavirus. And the Wuhan uh, coronavirus. Wuhan coronavirus. Fears continue to grow over the outbreak of the Wuhan coronavirus. Oh my gosh, I guess Christian Amanpour and Alison Camerata and the rest of them are looking someone to blame. Huh, Fredo? 
Welcome to uh, welcome back, I should say, to the Dan Prof Show and uh, uh, De Blasio, like Gavin Newsom earlier in the week, conceded the truth about certain policies proposed by the Trump administration, uh, the interaction or the interaction with the administration. That was what Gavin Newsom was complimentary in the direction of De Blasio, as you just heard previous segment. Uh, agreeing with Trump regarding the travel bans, the utility of them and the scientific basis for them per the CDC's Tony Fauci. So I'm going to return the favor and say what uh, California Congressman Katie Porter did in her questioning of CDC Director Robert Redfield. That also made some sense, uh, what she extracted from Redfield, this commitment. Will you commit right now to using the authority that you have vested in you under law that provides in a public health emergency for testing, treatment, exam, isolation without cost, yes or no? What I'm going to say is I'm going to review it in detail with no, CDC I'm, and the department. No, we're timing my time. Dr. Redfield, respectfully, I wrote you this letter along with my colleagues, Rosa DeLora and Lauren Underwood. Congressman Underwood and Congressman DeLora. We wrote you this letter one week ago. We quoted that existing authority to you and we laid out this problem. We asked for a response yesterday. The deadline and the time for delay has passed. Will you commit to invoking your existing authority under 42 CFR 71.30 to provide for coronavirus testing for every American regardless of insurance coverage? What I was trying to say is that CDC is working with HHS now to see how we operationalize that. Dr. Redfield, I hope that that answer weighs heavily on you because it is going to weigh very heavily on me and on every American family. And ultimately, she got him to yes. That's the upshot of it. And uh, look, if you believe the taxpayer should finance everything, that the government should be in control of everything, then... Ultimately, at some point, you're going to be right. And I would say that uh, Katie Porter and her Democrat colleagues are right in this instance about uh, the provision of the testing, the testing piece of response to coronavirus. For more on this topic, we're pleased to be joined by Stephen Hayward, senior resident scholar at the Institute of Governmental Studies at UC Berkeley, senior fellow at the Pacific Research Institute in San Fran and contributor to PowerlineBlog.com. Stephen, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. You know, is this uh, an occasion, as I'm suggested, where uh, Democrats like Katie Porter actually stumbled into an insight? <laughs> what do they say? Uh, a stop clock is right twice a day. Uh, you know, even the blind squirrel can find an acorn now and then. You can run through all those cliches. Uh, look, uh, you know, this is a, a, a you know a common good problem where the you know, security, public health. Uh, maybe is a good argument for saying the government uh, ought to lean on insurance companies to waive co-pays to have testing done, because testing's in all of our interests. If we think somebody may be uh, may have the virus, then I think we want to know about that. And if they're a low-income person or you know lack uh, good insurance, then uh, I think it's worth it to all of us to step up and make. But it's an extraordinary circumstance. It's 
It's not an excuse to socialize medicine, which, of course, is what the left is now trying to say. Right. Uh, maybe one other example of this uh, the happening in real time is this issue of paid sick leave. Uh, a piece in the Wall Street Journal from uh, econ professor, University of Kentucky, uh, who's also uh, affiliated with the Cato Institute. So he's a free marketeer uh, and an, a colleague of his suggests that uh, you want to mandate paid sick leave as part of the provision of aid to uh, workers in America. OK, but they say this is where the government has a role to play. Rather than creating a new mandate on employers, Congress and the state should address the present crisis through enhancement to existing social insurance programs if you want to provide this paid sick leave. Does that make sense to you? I'm not sure. I mean, I, you know, I think um, I think we need to wait and see whether this is going to be a two-week problem or a two-month problem or longer. If the longer this, uh, the longer we uh, keep shutting down America, which is what's happening right now, the more this is going to be a serious economic hit, and especially to the hospitality industry, to restaurants, to hotels, any service industries that's going to lose their customers and have to lay off people. Uh, and I'm not sure if guaranteed sick leave is the right ad- uh, the right approach um, or whether, I mean, we have done this a couple of times in recessions as recently as 20 years ago when I think the Bush administration had a, you know, a tax rebate of, I don't know, $100 or something kind of trivial, actually. But I think a one-time tax rebate to everybody in the country with the encouragement of our political leaders to go out and spend the money when we get the all-clear signal to help our restaurants and hotels and service industries revive themselves. That would be better. What's going on here is the left is using this as an excuse to push all their pet projects, you know, like guaranteed income, like paid family leave and sick leave and so forth. We even saw apparently uh, Nancy Pelosi trying to attach some pro-abortion provision yeah. to the, um, uh, the congressional bill, to provide, which is just outrageous, right? That's right. Uh, when we come back, too, I want to um, address uh, the bumpy ride we're on in another way that's been under-discussed, and that's with respect to our energy sector. More with Stephen Hayward. He's a scholar at UC Berkeley and a contributor to PowerlineBlog.com. We'll have more right after this. This is the Dan Proft Show. We're back with Stephen Hayward, resident scholar of the Institute of Governmental Studies at UC Berkeley, senior fellow at the Pacific Research Institute in San Francisco, contributor to PowerlineBlog.com. And uh, Stephen, over at uh, PowerlineBlog.com, you wrote earlier this week uh, about the need to strap in. It's going to get bumpy. And you weren't uh, talking about the Wall. You weren't talking about Wall Street directly, uh, indirectly, perhaps. But uh, the story of the Saudis and the Russians in a price war or perhaps a collaboration to inflict damage on America's energy sector, uh, the uh, cratering of the price of uh, barrels of oil this week and what that means to America's, what that could mean in medium term to America's energy sector and energy independence. I actually think the oil price war that's going on right now is a much bigger economic story and will last longer than the coronavirus. And that's because the Saudis and the Russians are supposedly fighting each other uh, but I think they're both really aiming this action at uh, the independent oil sector here in America that has been so dynamic over the last decade, which, which is responsible for almost all of the growth in world oil output increase in the last decade. But a lot of these country, uh, com- companies in our country work on very thin margins. A lot of them are in debt and have, are highly leveraged. Yes. And they're very vulnerable to low oil prices. So I think this is a price war against America. 
uh, and we'll see. I mean, this could last a year, and it could be very damaging to our oil sector. Well, this is the issue, too, right? And you, you point out, I think I saw Mark Perry's blog, Carpe Diem, uh, our uh, our output has doubled in the last decade from $6 billion to $13 billion barrels of oil because of the the fracking revolution. Yeah. Um, so, and, and thus, you know, the, the energy independence that we're enjoying. Um, but, but, uh, this, the, what you're talking about, that one piece I want to get to is the uh, highly leveraged, uh, businesses within that sector and a suggestion by some economists that we could see more bankruptcies because of the coronavirus than deaths for exactly the reason you're describing, uh, in terms of the dynamic in the energy sector. Yeah, I mean, remember one thing, that our independent energy sector is entrepreneurs, it's lots of finance capital, it's lots of risk takers, it's lots of small operations, whereas around the world, and especially in places like Saudi Arabia and Russia, the oil industry is a state-owned enterprise, uh, it's run by, uh, you know, the, the cronies and the insiders, uh, and it's a very different business model. Now, ours is better, of course, over the long run. It, we have a free enterprise, free market, capital-intensive, and and mobile capital uh, industry that's always going to win in the long run. But it does mean in the short run, these two models can clash. And, uh, uh, and you know, like I say, there'll be a lot of pay. We had a lot of bankruptcies back in 2014 when the Saudis tried to squeeze our sector by, by uh, lowering oil prices. I think, by the way, it's not a coincidence that the Russians and the Saudis chose this particular moment to engage in this price war while we're grappling with the, uh, the whole coronavirus problem. Right. And the question is, is this the reverse of uh, our trade back and forth with China, our trade war, to use the term, with China, where uh, maybe we'll endure some pain, but we're much uh, more capable of, of enduring the pain than the pain we inflicted on China? Are we in a situation, because of exactly what you just said, the state-owned nature of oil operations in Russia and Saudi Arabia, where they can endure some pain, um, and we're much less able to endure it in terms of, for example, Russia, you know, they predicate their budget on oil and uh, price of a, a barrel of oil at about 40 bucks. Saudi Arabia, more like 70 or 80 bucks. But they can endure that pain, that lost revenue, if they can inflict more on us. Yeah, well, so that's the interesting question is, you know, the United States has the most diversified economy in the world. Everyone knows that. The energy sector, although it's hugely important, I think it's less than 10 percent of our total um, uh, economy. Whereas in Russia, it's more like 30 percent. And for Saudi Arabia, it's probably, what, I don't know, 50 percent maybe. And so the point is, is that they have uh, some real risks that uh, if it doesn't pay off for them quickly in reducing our oil output and raising the price through natural market forces, that, you know, they're having to dip into their sovereign wealth funds and their own savings to pay for this price war. Uh, and so I think, as I say, in the long run, we have a massive advantage. But in the short run, it's going to be a very bumpy 12 months. Speaking of bumpy, uh, you also wrote about uh, not to get too scatological here, but um, the uh, the great the great uh, crisis of the coronavirus in terms of hoarding and uh, supplies, toilet paper, and uh, what this says about sort of America's hoarding instincts and perhaps uh, the overreaction to the coronavirus in certain quarters. <laughs> well, you know, when I used to live on the East Coast a few years ago, whenever there would be a snowstorm coming. Everyone would rush to the grocery store and panic buy water and bread and eggs and milk. And, yeah, sometimes those uh, uh, storms would shut down Philadelphia and New York and Washington, D.C. for maybe two days. And people acted like they were going to be stuck in their homes for weeks. It was just absurd. 
And so now this coming along, I don't get it. Why toilet paper? <laughs> I think what happens is a contagion of a different kind. Yes. People see everybody else buying toilet paper and thinking, gosh, I guess I better buy toilet paper, too. We're going to run out. Well, right. Not toilet paper. <laughs> Yeah, I think there's I think there's yeah, a, a monkey see monkey do aspect of it and also and this is, you know, consumer psychologists weighing in here to try to uh, yeah. uh assess the psyche of the American public but uh, about taking back control. You know, this is a way to exercise some control over your life where you feel like things are out of control because you you can't I, I mean, unless you're Joe Biden where you can just stand on the shore and say Ebola you shall not pass. Most of us can't uh, <laughs> just stop a virus through uh, you know our willpower. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I, you know, look, what people should be worried about is the fact that we may run short. It just goes on a long time. We could run short of certain key medicines and certain key ingredients that we import from China and other places overseas. That's the really dangerous thing. Toilet paper we make here in this country in paper mills. I mean, this is simply absurd that you think you're going to stock up on toilet paper. Uh, speaking of absurdity, uh, absurdities, um, you uh revisited uh, the Race Together Starbucks campaign, and this is yet another example of uh, a go woke, get broke, and I, I didn't want to uh, pass up on the opportunity to uh, use Starbucks as a as an example of being the bad example. Yeah, well, you know, Starbucks has an unusual business model uh, that takes too long to go through, but everybody knows what it is. It's a place to go hang out, uh, and they decided after being accused of racism, as you, as listeners may remember, to open their stores and their bathrooms to anyone whether they made a purchase or not. And so you can imagine what's going to happen next. And I discovered three professors, two at Boston College and one at the University of Texas, who did a very clever uh, and very detailed and dense study based on anonymous cell phone data. And it's a little creepy to think about right there. But what they figured out was how long people were staying in Starbucks, what the changes in the traffic of Starbucks was. And what they found was is that uh, this new, uh, you know, after the Institute of this policy, about a 7% decline in the number of people going to Starbucks outlets, higher in urban areas and much higher still close to homeless shelters. This is common sense to you and me. But it's nice to have a bunch of quantitative social scientists prove this. They also said that people were staying in the stores about 5% less than normal. He is Stephen Hayward, Senior Resident Scholar at the Institute of Governmental Studies at UC Berkeley. Senior fellow at the Pacific Research Institute in San Francisco and contributor to PowerlineBlog.com. Stephen, thanks as always for joining us. Thank you, Dan. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show and uh, a little levity. Coronavirus. Uh, Hysteria, and uh, just from the discussion, even if it's reasonable, it's still exhausting, isn't it? Uh, as I said before, you know, I've put myself in social isolation for four decades, so everybody laughed. Well, who's laughing now? Uh, and uh, the hope is that uh, this is not the end, and the end won't be with a bang, but with a sniffle. And uh, thank you, Babylon B, for facilitating some uh, lightheartedness. Nation's nerds wake up in utopia where everyone stays inside. Sports are canceled. Social interaction forbidden. How about B's parodies getting sharper and sharper? I like it. Uh, They report, in quotation mark, the nation's nerds woke up in utopia this morning. All types of nerds from social introverts to hardcore PC gamers welcome the dawn of this new era privately from their own homes. I've been waiting my whole life for this moment, said Ned Pendleton via text, of course. 
as he fired up League of Legends on his beefy gaming PC. They told me to take up a sport and that the kids playing basketball and stuff were going to be way more successful than us nerds who played Counter-Strike at LAN parties every weekend. They all laughed at me. Well, who's laughing now? Exactly. Uh, of course, uh, Babylon B notes, many nerds are running out of hygiene products, but they say that's not an issue. <laughs> oh. Uh, in a uh, related story that's not a parody, this is a good one. Yeah, you, you, you know, you look to see who's got the uh, tenacity to survive whatever may come. And uh, this teenager across the pond in Leeds looks to be a good example of someone who does. Teenager sent home from school after being caught selling shots of hand sanitizer to his fellow pu- pupils at 50 pounds a go, according to his family. Arbitraging hand sanitizer. A future market maker. His mom, uh, Jenny Tompkins from Leeds, posted a picture of him arriving home after his entrepreneurial exploits at Dixon's Unity Academy. In a post on Facebook, she said, you know, it's hard to discipline her son when his dad, when, quote, his dad called to say he was a legend. <laughs> chip off, chip off the old block. Dad's proud. The school denied it had excluded any pupils for selling hand sanitizer. Uh, but, uh, that's not what his, uh, classmates were saying. Uh, one said you can't fault his logic. Others reminisced about, uh, selling cigarettes for, uh, one pound to go. Someone else said, but he gets an A in economics. Yeah. Well, well, so, you know, living example, it really brings supply and demand home to, uh, his mates, doesn't it? As opposed to what the politicians would say if this was happening uh, in the general economy, politicians in the West talk, they talk about that as price gouging. No, it's actually supply and demand. Find the market clearing price. His mother said she tried to be serious when the school called and later when her son arrived home, quote, with a big grin on his face. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Future captain of industry identified in Leeds. This is the Dan Prop Show. Fake news. He's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Again, follow us at danproftshow.com, at Dan Proft Show on Facebook and uh, Twitter, at Dan Proft as well on Twitter, if you like. Uh, worst stock market day since 1987 yesterday. A hammering the market has taken uh, over the last week. And uh, that combined with uh, the cancellation of uh, all social interaction in America over the last 48 hours has uh, politicians in Washington scrambling making arguments for demand-side stimulus as well as supply-side stimulus. Demand-side stimulus in the uh, form of paid sick leave, in the form of temporary payroll tax deduction, supply-side stimulus in uh, the form of SBA loans, the extension of uh, SBA's 7A loan program, uh, as well as uh, tax payment deferment. Uh, Marco Rubio, the... uh, 
individual who gave us a common good capitalism as the way forward at the end of last year, writing in National Review that uh, he's introducing legislation uh, today to support President Trump's request to provide uh, those resources to the SBA's uh, loan program to extend more liquidity to businesses that are particularly smaller businesses that are struggling in the wake of uh, supply side issues, supply chain issues, I should say, as well as uh, uh, you know, the shutdown of significant portions of civil society. But how to get the stock market back uh, and uh, retain some economic vitality uh, at least coming out of whatever period of darkness we're going to be in as we deal with the coronavirus outbreak and try to get to the other side of hopefully a flattened curve over the next weeks and perhaps months for uh, a suggestion there. Pleased to be joined by Amity Schlaes. She is the board chair of the Calvin Coolidge Presidential Foundation, best-selling author of The Forgotten Man, A New History of the Great Depression, and her new book, Great Society, A New History. She has penned a piece along with uh, a fellow Wheatonian, Wheaton, Illinois, very own Brian Westbury, uh, that tries to answer that very question. Uh, Amity, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Oh, so glad to be here. So uh, what are the responses? Uh, what do you think the uh, initial responses should be in um, uh, in uh, trying to uh, resuscitate uh a, a, a Wall Street that uh, is now firmly in bear market territory? Well, there's no need to think small. That's that's the, the real problem. Even loans, extending liquidity to small businesses um, in official statutory character, categories is, is still thinking small. So, so the, the natural mindset that you hear in America is let's have a big step from the Fed, something dramatic, and then little steps small steps, liquidity here and there, um, delaying tax payments. Um, I, I think I class all these as lame. The better thing to do is to think back to 2008 and think counterfactually, what could we have done that would have made a recovery from 2008 come quick? We know what that is. And that is to set up the U.S. as a target for growth and investment. What does one mean by that? Well, Brian and I uh, penned this article yesterday, which ran on Real Clear Politics, where we gave four suggestions. They're only suggestions, but they're all out of the box and big. And the point is, when you hear them, you say, oh, we could never do that. President Trump would never do that. Congress would never do that. But it's very important to mention them because recovery starting Tuesday is possible if we actually would implement something brave. So we should at least take a moment to admit to ourselves that we could get the stock market back next week and in in terms of real growth, not in terms of just puff puff. Um, What would such a suggestion be? One, cut the capital gains rate dramatically. Like in half, you suggest. Like in half. I wish Marco Rubio would say that. Uh, There's nothing wrong with saying that. Real market experts will say, oh, yeah, that's caused people to realize capital gains today, that is sell today, and that would hurt the market. And the answer is for about four hours. But by Tuesday, the world would recognize that the U.S. is more competitive because its capital gains rate, the cost of capital has just become a lot lower and make that cut permanent. And, uh, you know, the history of the capital gains rate cuts that we've seen has been almost always that we get more revenue than we expect. So, 
anyway, before you get into the defenses of these arguments, our point is, Brian's and mine is, hear them out. Consider them in the privacy of your home. So well, that, that just an on, obvious one? Yeah, just on the capital gains piece, too. I mean, right now, because this is a global phenomenon, a global uh, issue, a pandemic, it's been, as it's been so termed, uh, people are looking for a flight to quality. And so your essential argument would be that would make uh, America that much more attractive as a as a haven for those fleeing to quality. Yes, it shouldn't just be bonds that are a haven for quality. It's U.S. equities. And there, for all sorts of reasons, you have to think as though you're in markets. And what, you, what people in markets think, unlike the rest of us, is what? how could I make money out of this today? And there are plenty of opportunities, and that's one, positioning the U.S. as a more competitive um, receiving vessel of the world's funds. We also suggested um, that it's a good time for somebody and not just Warren Buffett on a bigger scale, even the Warren Buffett with Goldman Sachs last time, to buy a lot of equities, isn't it? And where could those equities go? Where could those stocks go? In American 401ks. So how do you do that? Well, is that impossible in IRAs and 401ks? Who could do that? If the federal government wants to follow the Andrew Yang plan or the guaranteed income plan, the universal income plan, let it establish uh, IRAs for people and buy stocks and put them in there so the moral hazard of the government controlling that money is reduced. Now, that is so out of the box you dare not utter it, then people laugh at you. But it's conceivable that is turn the opportunity of a downturn into a small privatization of part of Social Security. Wouldn't it be better if you're home sitting with your coronavirus threat, feeling sorry for yourself because there might not be butter in the store to know that you bought cheap? Yeah. And so, and, uh, and so it sort of I mean, it sort of uh, reminds me that suggestion, the timing of it of, boy, uh, with every all the college kids home and uh, being prepared to do classes online, could we have this opportunity to finally reshape higher education and move away from so much of the bricks and mortar uh, financing that is not required in the digital age? It could be the impetus for some um, uh, innovation in higher ed and the delivery of higher education in the same way you're saying here with respect to Americans uh, saving for their retirement. Yes. I'm I'm not saying it's not tragic when people fall sick or die. No, of course. I'm saying the tragedy of a giant 2008-style slow recovery, terrible mood, increase in government is avoidable. And that, 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 it, that it, you know, the, it, Rahm Emanuel right there in Chicago said a crisis is a terrible thing to waste. He was right. And it's a terrible thing to waste for big government people who use the opportunity of a crisis, the occasion to expand government. But it's a terrible thing to waste for markets people too. Well, right, and, and, and by let's the... not waste it by by getting into a defensive crouch. Yeah, and the, and just uh, to your point, I mean, you have that happening on the left right now with uh, the renewed calls for uh, government-run health care. You know, if we had government-run health care the way they do in in uh, Singapore then we wouldn't be having these problems with the distribution of testing kits and the like. So this, so you definitely have those on the left using this as an opportunity to argue for their government take over the healthcare system. So to your point. Right. I mean, I've, I've actually heard uh, regular people talking about how they're going to buy Netflix, for example, this week, that is shares and Netflix. It, it, regular people are closer to gaining from a down market than they know. 
Uh, well, not just rich people who play in the you know who play in the market regularly. And this is it, it's just a better time. Um, I also I'm I'm not saying the market wasn't too high. I kind of thought it was too high. I'm just saying when it's down, that's an opportunity. It's beginning to be seriously down, um, at least yet yeah, last night. Um, I also mentioned in this article, Brian and I mentioned, Brian Wesbury, about rescheduling the federal debt and taking advantage of the lower interest rate. Yeah, and I want to uh, pick up your last suggestion, too, which is more a statement of principle uh, when we come back. More with Amity Schlaes, who uh, co-authored this piece of RealClearPolitics.com, which I'll tweet out at Dan Prof Show with Brian Westbury from First Trust, an economist. She is the board chair of the Calvin Coolidge, Coolidge Presidential Foundation and best-selling author of her new book, Great Society, New History. Back with more Amity Schlaes right after this. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the dan proft show we're talking to amity schlaes the board chair of the calvin coolidge presidential foundation best-selling author of the forgotten man a New History of the Great Depression, and her new book, Great Society, A New History. And uh, Amity, uh, we were talking about the recommendations you and uh, economist Brian Westbury came up with to respond to the financial crisis, particularly as it pertains to resuscitating the market. One of the things that you said that I wanted you to develop a little bit is this is also a time to restate first principles. Don't just say the market's going to rebound at the right time, as President Trump said, but make a William Jennings Bryan-like speech about capitalism as the key to the rebound. Right. We will not go down on the cross of the coronavirus. Yes, right? exactly. So, the cross of the corona, that corona crown, no. You know, it depends if you're an optimist, but let's think about optimism and let's feel it. The optimistic thing I feel is a crisis like this also reminds us where our, our future lies. We want a vaccine. We want one so badly. What really the government is doing right now by quarantining or taking quarantine-like measures is buying time till it has a vaccine. We all know that. Where is the vaccine going to come from? It's going to come from a company. It's not going to come from the FDA. The FDA doesn't invent stuff. It just monitors stuff. Mm -hmm. Remember that. Who is likely to distribute the vaccine? A company supported by the government or at least not intruded upon by the government. Will the vaccine work? Maybe. We don't know. The best last hope is probably a vaccine. And the best uh, last hope for making a vaccine is usually a company. That's just one example. Just to, just to put a fine point on it, we have that occurring right now in real time when it comes to developing antiviral treatments, developing uh, testing kits, the, the, whether it's American companies or Israeli companies, that's what's happening right now. And that's where it's happening. These are the same pharma companies that on your radio show, doubtless, and on any radio show by uh, people Dan Prof disagrees with, were vilified two weeks ago. Right. So the natural habit of young people 
right now often, unfortunately, is to vilify pharma. It's it's a theme of every feature-length movie, practically. And then the bad pharma guy comes on stage, and he turns out to be a rat. Pharma offers us a lot of hope. More importantly, you think of the compound annual rate of return on equities over the history of the United States, including the Great Depression, is pretty good. It's better than Social Security's returns. You've discussed that before on your show. Equities are still probably going to help us out of this, and they're probably going to feed families and um, facilitate retirements in future. They've been a pretty good advantage. Equities are basically the essence of the private sector. They're the essence of the 401k and the IRA. So a lot of getting better is involved with the private sector. It's not going to come from President Trump or any president following a certain number of rules. The only reason the government is there is to preclude worse disaster. So so I think it's really interesting to be reminded of this. Dan, I know you're interested in schools, and there's one point I also wanted to make. We had a tweet here in New York where I am from the mayor that said, uh, we need schools to be open because they feed children and parents don't have time to take care of kids. <laughs> parents need this. And, and yes. I thought, wow, is this revealing? It's like the tide going back and you find the, the true true um, priorities of various institutions. That is not what schools are for. Schools are for learning. Um, and they, they know it's nice they sometimes give free lunch to children who are disadvantaged. It's nice that parents have a place to drop their kids off, but those two latter are not the primary purpose of schools. And it's very revealing about the thinking of New York that that the mayor would put that first. There's a lot of put those things first. Yeah, there's a lot of commentaries on culture happening in real time here, um, and a lot of them are very uncomfortable, aren't they? And they're very uncomfortable and they're very interesting. So that's what schools have become. Young people are promised safety, become very very afraid when the environment becomes slightly unsafe, as now. I, so maybe we shouldn't promise safety so often. Yeah, it seems to me, I get your take on this, too. I mean, thinking about uh, uh, if you're old enough to live through H1N1 a decade ago, um, as we both were, the uh, reaction is is markedly different. The coverage is markedly different. The popular reaction is markedly different. And it seems to me that uh, over the intervening decade, we have become more uh, entitled in a way to living in a world without consequences. We want when we want, when we want it, which is immediately, and we want panaceas that uh, move with the speed of flipping a light switch. And if, uh, if, if we don't get it, then, and this is the dangerous part, then not only do we throw a temper tantrum, we throw a temper tantrum and we empower the government to uh, be the provider of panaceas. I'll just say yes to that. Okay. Um, all right. I'll just say yes. So it's one thing to have an intellectual argument that you want to slow the spread of the virus until we have palliatives and or preventatives. That is logic. It's another to say we're going to keep everyone safe. Um, so so that uh, that's the problem. And, and you know, I, I will go back to the markets. I, I do think if the Fed can think outside the box and go into negative interest rate territory, which it might, then, it, it, I mean, that's conceivable, right? Um, yes. Then the, the fiscal side can think outside the box, too. And I'm very glad you distinguish between the supply side and the demand side in your intro to the show. Because what do we mean by supply side? We mean making business want to work, making the market free to create its own demand. Um, And there's something about Keynesianism that it goes with flu, right? Or emergency. Yeah. 
you know, pretty soon we're going to get the shovel-ready projects. So, so I was very honored to write this article with Brian, who's a really thoughtful mind, and I hope there are other solutions put forward, even if they're not perfect, even if they need an edit, um, to the market's problem. The, the other debate that's uh, raging now, and this is sort of across the spectrum uh, that I want to get your take on, is uh, coronavirus uh, being a global crisis, but not a crisis of globalization. Uh, because, uh, of course, a lot of uh, people are suggesting, well, one of the reasons uh, we should be onshoring businesses uh, and, and supply changes just for this sort of eventuality with what's happened in China, for example. And while that's ideal, uh, it doesn't mean that globalization uh, is the approximate cause of this problem. And there was a good piece in uh, Financial Times by Robert Armstrong that uh, argues uh, precisely that, talking about just-in-time supply chains are more the problem than international ones. Uh, but I wanted to get your take on that, as, as, as there's a lot of Republicans, too, Trump Republicans, Fortress America Republicans, who say, you know, this is now the time to force all these supply chains for big tech companies and manufacturing companies onshore. Well, it's just not that productive an angle because you can spend a lot of money trying to force companies to stay here or force projects to stay here. And you can do that for national security reasons. Germany, for example, is always, Germany is a country surrounded by other bellicose countries and it's bellicose and it's always had a industrial um, core is the word they use. Uh, and they don't want too much outside of Germany because they might have to fight either way. We need the industrial core. You would hear, um, Helmut Kohl say mm -hmm. that in the old days, particularly there's nothing wrong with us wanting an industrial core or center of safety. We just have to be aware um, that it costs money because usually when we do it at home, we're less productive. We're not playing to comparative advantage. Um, so so I, I, I suppose you can do it for national security reasons, but you have to be absolutely um, clear and loud and transparent that you're conceding some productivity for um, for purposes of defense, essentially. She is Amity Schles, board chair of the Calvin Coolidge Presidential Foundation, best-selling author of The Forgotten Man, A New History of the Great Depression, and her new book, which you should pick up as well, Great Society, A New History. Amity, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you, Dan. Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. And uh, we mentioned uh, Yahoo YouGov survey yesterday and the differing attitudes to the coronavirus and the coverage of it, the reactions to it, the expectations of it between Republicans and Democrats. Uh, another interesting uh, survey, this a uh, little bit more focused survey of a thousand private sector employees about their employment situation. Things, uh, a list of things to uh, answer two questions. Has your employer done this? Do you think it would be helpful if your employer did do this if they haven't? So uh, just give you an example. Regularly deep cleaning workspaces. 41% say their employer has done this. 77% say it would be helpful. Asking people to voluntarily self-quarantine. 37% of employers have done it. Offering additional paid sick leave to affected employees. Only one-fifth of employers have done this, and thus the push at the federal level for that to be part of an aid package. And by the way, I should add, um, a majority of 
employees say their employers should do everything I'm about to list. Of course they should. The employee's perspective versus the employer's perspective. A little bit of space between the two, although uh, some don't really animate the employees very much either. Uh, And then the last one in particular we'll get to is the least popular among employees. But anyway, uh, so paid sick leave, sharing information from the CDC, public health agencies, 43% of employers have. 72% of employees say their employer should. Offering additional time off to care for family who are affected. A a fifth of employers are. 68% of employees wish they would. Limiting international and domestic work travel. A third of employers are. Two-thirds wish they would. Offering the option of working remotely. The option of working remotely. A quarter of employers are. It's only a quarter with all the talk about uh, working remotely. And a company is telling their employees not to come to work and so forth. You, you, you get the sense the number would be bigger. Um, but a quarter of employers have. Uh, of course, uh, employees, two-thirds of employees would like them to. Um, and this is mandating all employees work remotely, which some companies have done. But only 15% of companies have mandated it. And only 51% of employees wish their company would. And it uh, brings to mind this uh, piece over at Fee. Uh, uh, Foundation for Economic Education, fee.org, by a gentleman named uh, John Miltimore, who is the uh, managing editor of fee.org. And he talks about uh, working remotely. The coronavirus is scary, but there's nothing to fear for remote work. 2016 Gallup survey found that nearly one third of employees work remotely at least 80 at least uh, 80 percent of the time. Government stats put the full time figure a little lower at 29 percent. But Nearly a third of the American workforce works remotely to begin with. He uh, writes about the benefits of working from home as a writer and editor. No commute is a blessing. Not having to pay for uh, before school or after school care for kids is great. Save a bundle. Makes sense. I don't have to pack a lunch. I can work out whenever I feel like it, theoretically. (laughs) Are there downsides uh, to uh, remote work? Absolutely, he writes. It can get lonely. Though this is less of a problem today with apps like Slack and Monday.com that keep you in close touch with coworkers. Distractions can be an issue. This would be the big one for me. Uh, distractions can be an issue, especially if you're not disciplined and don't have production-based goals to meet. Yeah, leaving the TV off, he finds, is a good policy. Yeah, it's just too easy to slip into, I don't know, you know what, I'll, I'm going to take a stroll, have a cigar, go sit outside at a cafe, have a coffee, um, you know, watch something on Amazon Prime or Netflix, catch up on back episodes of Curb Your Enthusiasm, and just take, you know, the mental health breaks I find when I've worked at home before – they mount fairly quickly, so I don't have the discipline that Miltimore does, and that, that's what he's discussing. But in, interestingly, generally speaking, most people working remote and uh, alone are more productive, unlike me. Uh, I get more done. That's what he said to people who ask what's the, uh, the best thing about it in terms of your professional success. That's how I respond to people asking me what it's like working from home. People don't seem to believe me, but it's true. I get more done. It's not hard to see why when you think about it. I don't have to worry about people stopping by to chat, interrupt my work. No long lunches, uh, no commute, and that's a big part of every of a lot of people's workday. That's true. Now all that time is spent working. And actually, Stanford University did a study conducted with a, a Chinese travel website and uh, found a remarkable surge in worker productivity the equivalent of nearly a day's work each week among employees who work from home. We found massive, massive improvement in performance, a 13% improvement in performance from people working at home, according to Stanford professor Nicholas Bloom. Remote employees have lower attrition rates, more likely to work a full day. 
And it turns out to tend to have a lot less distractions like NCAA pools and water cooler uh, talk and, and th- three martini lunches. Um, it makes some sense. It's just, I don't know, maybe I would acclimate to it if I worked from home and would be more productive. But uh, now I just uh, incorporate, if, if, if I have to work from home, I just incorporate naps into all those other things that I do to kill time if I am in an office setting. But that's me. Uh, John Miltimore and maybe all those who have been farmed out to work remotely now will actually end up being more productive. And so the economic impact of coronavirus will be a little bit less. There's sort of a a reach, but uh, a silver lining nonetheless. This is the Dan Proud Show. Exposing political fakers, fixers and takers. He's Dan Proud. And this is the Dan Proud Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Peggy Noonan says, don't panic is rotten advice in the Wall Street Journal. She says a little bit more than that, but that's one of the takeaways. So what's good advice? Panic? For more on this topic, including uh, an interview he got with AOC, which was quite breathtaking. Brett Baer, Fox News anchor, host of Special Report, 5 p.m. Chicago time, and author of Three Days at the Brink, FDR's Daring Gamble to Win World War II. Brad, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. So uh, start with the politics of coronavirus before we get to your uh, back and forth with AOC. The uh, uh, aid package uh, being debated on the Hill today uh, going to move, according to Nancy Pelosi, one way or another. Uh, But there's some real discrepancy between what uh, McConnell thinks should be included and what House Democrats do. Yeah, I think they'll get there. This is one of those things that um, the just push of the moment will get them over the finish line, no matter how much it costs. And that's always the scary part in Washington. When you have consensus that something big has to be done, but there's not a price tag, it's like a giant piece of steak in a lion's den as far as, um, you know, budgeting. And the CBO, Congressional Budget Office, is not going to score this before they vote on it. and so we're looking at no matter what happens, it'll be a ton of money after the $8 billion that's already been put in for, for this effort. Uh, this will be on the economic side, obviously, and uh, will include a lot, a lot of things. And while needed, uh, there won't be any check on how much or um, whether it's too much. Although there was this uh, report that uh, Pelosi was pushing to include a Hyde Amendment loophole in the uh, stimulus plan or bailout is probably a better word, a more accurate word, at least not uh, a politician's word. Uh, If she does something like that, then she could trip up this process because that will not go unchallenged. No, it won't. Um, And that's one of the things about having a Republican Senate uh, or vice versa, if you the other party has a check on that, even in the pressure of getting something done quickly. You know, it was interesting that Congresswoman uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez said uh, the opposite, that it was Republicans trying to put in uh, abortion language, uh, which I don't think was accurate yesterday. Well, uh, she said a lot of things that uh, call into question accuracy. One of the other things she said in your uh, query of her about the Michigan primary and uh, why uh, Bernie was unable to repeat his performance of 2016. She she blamed it on voter suppression. Uh, this sounds like very much like Nancy Pelosi complaining about misogyny in the Democratic primary electorate as the reason Elizabeth Warren didn't do better. 
Um, well, who's suppressing Democrat primary voters in a Democrat primary in Michigan? Right. And which is why I asked her again. Let me just be clear what you're saying here. Um, she then later clarified on Twitter that she wasn't saying that he lost because of that, but that there was voter suppression and that it's a problem. I think more of a problem is the articulation by Bernie Sanders that the progressive ideology is winning um, when he's not winning. And, um, and, and Biden is not saying the same things that Bernie is saying. Uh, so I, I think that that is a kind of a, a missing link there in, in how they talk about uh, progressivism. And what is Sunday's debate going to look like, do you expect? It just seems to me that Bernie is unwilling to do the things he needs to do to change the trajectory of the race, go after Biden with respect to questions about his mental acuity, go after Biden with respect to some of the Peter Schweitzer details about uh, uh, at least perceived self-dealing to family members, leveraging his office as vice president. He just wants to continue to rinse and repeat that socialism ain't bad. I think, you know, you're, you're largely right. I mean, having talked to him a few times, I think he is in the pull the punches kind of mindset. I'm only fighting on the 30,000 foot big uh, policy policy differences. Um, You know, obviously Joe Biden is going to face those kind of questions going forward in a general election if he's the nominee. Um, So, you know, I I think this debate is going to be interesting, but not like that interesting. With with just going back to um, uh, the president's perspective on this, you know, he's again trying to put um, a at least still notes of optimism on the situation at current and uh, that he's being uh, received well uh, in some quarters, some unusual quarters, de Blasio agreeing with the travel restrictions to, to uh, uh, with respect to the EU. Gavin Newsom saying good things about the communication between his him and his office and the administration with respect to that uh, cruise ship off the coast of San Francisco. But then even from the public health officials who are roundly respected, like Tony Fauci, you're getting a, a bit of a muddle, too. Uh, you know, we're not where we need to be with testing. We, we're not set up as a country to do what some of these other countries have done in terms of moving uh, the test kits as quickly as uh, other countries have. But by the same token, we're putting too much emphasis on testing, said Tony Fauci as well. Yeah, it's a mixed message. I think the testing thing is a big issue. Yeah. Um, the governors still don't have the test. The CDC is not doing numbers anywhere near what they need to be doing. I mean, if we were positioned like South Korea and we were able to test large swaths of, of America, some of this stuff wouldn't be happening. Some of the, the stuff, the shutdowns, the NBA could test all their players and they could play without, without a, a fan base and they could still be on TV and there would be some calming factor to that. Because of the uncertainty, there's fear and fear leads to decisions that you might as well do this instead of risking putting people in danger. Um, maybe, you know, what about uh, this as a way of have a calming effect, Brett? Um, you and I will play as scabs in the Masters. Um, and then we'll get some of our Sounds friends great. as well. Uh, what about that? Just, you know, for the, for the nation. We'll play Augusta for four days yeah. for the nation. Uh, listen, I'm fine going down to TPC Sawgrass today. They've got <laughs> openings, I think. It's, I think they've got tea times. Be like Tiger and Phil, although I can't play for Brett Bear Steaks. Uh, we got we got to ratchet down the steaks <laughs> a little bit. Uh, Brett Bear, Fox News anchor, special report, 5 p.m. Chicago Times during the week. Uh, also the best-selling author of Three Days at the Brink, FDR's uh, Daring Gamble to Win World War II. Brett, thanks for joining us. Appreciate hey, it. 
Stay healthy, all right? Yeah, you too. We'll see you. Take care. Now for another reason why Dan Puff is single. Yeah, one of the reasons is you know you can't interact with anybody. You got to stay six feet away from everybody, so that's a reason in the era of coronavirus. Uh, but uh, two other stories: uh, Ilhan Omar, she's brotherly love Spice, one of the social the Spice Girls, Congresswoman from the Minneapolis area. You'll recall she uh, tweeted prominently this week in uh, castigation of the president for referring to the coronavirus as foreign saying viruses, no, no nationality. No, of course. Well, she also previously said that uh, she was not separated from her then husband or dating someone, told a Minneapolis TV station that she then stopped talking about her personal life because it turned out that she was separated. She's subsequently been divorced from her husband. And the rumors were that she was dating her campaign consultant, Tim Minette, uh, rumors based on Tim Minette's wife, going public in a divorce filing with with uh, from her husband, Tim, saying that Tim Minette, my husband, is dating Ilhan Omar, and I frown on that, so I don't want to be married to him anymore. Well, fast forward to yesterday, and Ilhan Omar married political consultant Tim Minette. Oh, the coronavirus can't stop love. Love conquers all. And this has started you know, back to the fall, the present. They were denying they were in a relationship at the time getting married uh, about eight months later. Hmm, interesting. Now, Minette is the subject of an FEC complaint about uh, the nature of Omar's campaign spending and so forth. But uh, anyway, they're married. He is not a member of her family. He's not a blood relative. So that separates him from some of the other questions that surround Omar about uh, previous husbands. But anyway, uh, there you go. Uh, Omar and uh, Tim Minette. Don't want any part of that. Glad I wasn't on the Invite list won't be buying anything on the registry. And then there's uh, this. We talked about this earlier in the week. The uh, uh, accomplice to the D.C. sniper, uh, the tandem that killed 10 people back in 2002 and has been sentenced to life in prison, got married in prison. Lee Boyd Malvo, who was 17 at the time of those killings, is now 35. We now have identified his spouse. Sable Noel Knapp, 30 years old. The two were married in a low-key civil ceremony in uh, uh, Virginia's Red Onion State Prison a couple of weeks ago, less than two weeks ago. Uh, Knapp is part of a prominent Iowa family of property developers and power brokers. She's donated hundreds of thousands of dollars to political causes. She describes herself as a trust fund baby because she is. 
And uh, she's a big, woke, passionate advocate for wealth redistribution, racial justice, and so on and so forth. She's really committed to social activism for sure, and I think she was always looking for ways to make changes, said her lawyer, Julian Richter. Yeah, uh, who represented her, by the way, when she was arrested at a Black Lives Matter protest in Maine. Ah, yes, the trust fund dilettante who now marries a convicted mass murderer who's sentenced to life in prison for more meaning in her life and as a way to rebel against mommy and daddy. Oh, boy. 30 years old. Hmm. 30 years old. That's what's out there in the in the dating pool, in the available pool. And that's why Dan Proft is here. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Follow us at danprofshow.com and social media at Dan Prof Show. A lot of talk about President Trump's performance, a lot of criticism about his management of this crisis. The D.C. press corps, of course, delighting in trying to make this Trump's Katrina or, or even worse. Listen to Brian Class, a poli-sci professor and Washington Post columnist. Yeah, I mean, I think since the beginning of this crisis, the important thing for Donald Trump has been protecting myths around his alternative reality, which is to say that he has this completely under control. And in Chernobyl, what you had was a moment in which protecting the Soviet states myths were the most important thing, and that caused people to die. And so I think what we need now is objective policy that is driven by evidence. It is driven by public health experts. It is driven by honesty and credibility. And unfortunately, what you've had for the last couple months is Trump playing catch up and trying to spin this as though it's a PR problem or an economic problem, as opposed to a public health crisis that requires urgent leadership that he simply has not delivered so far. Trump's Chernobyl. Hmm. If it's Trump's Chernobyl, what is it for congressional Democrats, House Democrats in particular, but congressional Democrats in general? Very uh, good piece by uh, Joel Pollack over at Breitbart puts together a timeline bumping up the coronavirus development with the impeachment gambit. Hmm. How about connecting those dots? Uh, Maybe this is why Americans instinctively have more confidence in congressional Republicans than Democrats at this point. January 11th. Chinese state media report the first known death from an illness originating in the Wuhan market. January 15th, Speaker Pelosi holds a vote to send articles of impeachment to the Senate. Pelosi and Democrats, you remember, celebrate that solemn occasion, reluctant uh, drudgery, but a constitutional duty. They uh, mark that with silver pens and silver platters, Mm -hmm. a commemorative pens and silver platters. But you get the gist. So January 11th, the first report of a death from an illness in the Wuhan market. January 15th, the vote to send articles of impeachment to the Senate. January 21, first person with coronavirus arrives in the U.S. from China, where he had been in Wuhan. January 23rd, House impeachment managers make their opening statements for removing Trump. January 23rd, same day. Same day as opening statements by the House impeachment managers. China closes off the city of Wuhan completely to slow the spread of the coronavirus to the rest of China. January 30th, a week later. Senators begin asking two days of questions of both sides in the president's impeachment trial. So this is almost three weeks after the first known death from an illness originating in the Wuhan market. You've got the Senate trial. Same day, the Senate trial begins. WHO declares a global health emergency as coronavirus continues to spread. 
The next day, what's the Senate doing? Holding a vote on whether to allow further witnesses and documents at the impeachment trial. January 31st, same day, Trump declares a national health emergency and imposes a ban on travel to and from China. Former uh, Vice President Joe Biden calls Trump's decision hysterical xenophobia and fear-mongering. Hysterical xenophobia and fear-mongering. And by the way, Joe Biden yesterday basically reiterated that even after all we know six weeks later. February 2nd, the first death from coronavirus outside China is reported in the Philippines. February 3rd, House impeachment managed to begin closing arguments calling Trump a threat to national security. February 4th, Trump talks about coronavirus in his State of the Union address. And then Pelosi rips it up. Of course, famously. February 5th, the Senate votes to acquit on both articles. February 5th, House Democrats finally take up coronavirus in the House Foreign Affairs Subcommittee on Asia. January 11th to February 5th, House Democrats obsessed with impeaching the president, the flimsy case they had. And I I don't know what Democrats are going to say. We can walk and chew gum at the same time. Not really as a general rule and not really specifically in this case, because, of course, Washington and the entire media operation associated with it was in the grips of impeachment as Democrats and all their special interest groups, all of their handmaids in the media were looking for every way, every angle in to try to get some Republicans to flip on Trump so that even if they couldn't convict, they could call it bipartisan. It didn't happen in the House, you know, with the exception of Mitt Romney, didn't happen in the Senate. They never made their case, which is why the approval rating among the American electorate, generally speaking, for House Demo- or for congressional Democrats is lower than congressional Republicans now six weeks later. You think that the American electorate is saying, you know, way to give it the college try? Hardly. They basically have base approval rating of known partisans. That's it. January 11th to February 5th. Interesting timeline. It's well done by Joel Pollack to bump those two up against one another in terms of priorities. So much emphasis and run to the government. And why isn't the government prepared with uh, testing kits? And I'm not just talking about, you know, in this context over six weeks. I'm talking about, generally speaking, across multiple administrations. The government is not as good as it could be in responding to true public good matters like a viral outbreak because it's in so many other businesses, wasting so much other time, so much other mindshare. Things it's not good at, like every social engineering gambit it's undertaken in the last 80 years. And thus, uh, Tony Fauci talking about uh, one of the failures of the response so far, and that is the distribution of testing kits to get to the sort of testing levels that start to give us a sense of the denominator here in terms of the viral spread. That is a failing. And a that, failing, yes. It, it is a failing. I mean, let's admit it. The fact is, the way the system was set up, is that the public health component that Dr. Uh, that, that Dr. Redfield was talking about was a system where you put it out there in the public and a physician asks for it and you get it. The okay. idea of anybody getting it easily the way people in other countries are doing it, we're not set up for that. Do I think we should be? Yes, but we're not. Right, because everybody's attention is on partisan politics and using impeachment as a election tool. Because you don't like the outcome of a particular election. Oh, meanwhile, what was happening for the two years before, before impeachment? Russian collusion investigation. This news out that will be completely buried under all the coronavirus coverage. Just days after the news of the Trump Tower meeting drew the attention of Bob Mueller's Russian investigation, the translator present told the FBI there was no talk of collusion between the Trump campaign and the Kremlin, according to recently released documents. This comes to us from RealClearInvestigations.com. 
Anatoly uh, uh, Samakaranov, who's the translator, quoted in the FBI memo, no discussion of the 2016 United presidential election or collusion between the Russian government and the Trump campaign at the infamous Trump Tower meeting. That was one of the smoking guns. The exculpatory evidence not mentioned in the Mueller report two years later, two years later, and the silence in the interim uh, occurred as theorizing on cable TV and the press helped shape the impression that that meeting was somehow central to the allegations of collusion. It needed to be, perhaps, but it wasn't. It wasn't. Uh, It was exactly what Don Jr. said it was about the Magnitsky Act. Uh, but it wasn't about collusion. No discussion of the, of the 2016 presidential campaign or collusion between the Russian government and the Trump campaign. No smoking gun, according to Samakaranov. Not a, no discussion about dirt on Hillary either. The translator says he doesn't think Hillary Clinton was ever mentioned by name. Fourteen pages in the Mueller report devoted to laying out the detail. The chronology, the circumstance of the Trump Tower meeting, no mention of this translator's denial of collusion or his, and, or his corroboration of Trump Jr.'s description of the meeting as benign. Sakamaranov, according to the FBI's 302, the interview with him, told, uh, Samakaranov yeah, told investigators, the, uh, this is a quote from his 302, he told the interviewing agents that he would have contacted the FBI if he thought the meeting was nefarious. I'll predicate it on nothing. And John Solomon over justthenews.com, his news site, former Hill reporter, memo from January of 2017 says Trump's taking office, exonerating Lieutenant General Mike Flynn as being any agent of Russia, as the allegation asserted initially. 2018 letter obtained by Just the News between Special Counsel Mueller's office and defense lawyers shows that the DOJ exoneration memo was written after Flynn had been interviewed by FBI agents in January of 2017 and after the government learned the former DIA chief had kept his old agency briefed on his contacts with Russia, something that weighed heavily against the notion he was aiding Moscow. They did not believe he was acting as an agent of the Russians, but they uh, tripped him up on uh, lying to the FBI charge that even though the FBI agents say they didn't think he was purposely trying to be untruthful. And Andy McCabe walks after being purposely untruthful, the former deputy director. So for two years, it was these gambits and these lies and these omissions, errors or lies of commission and omission. And then it was the impeachment gambit, Ukraine. And all the while, you could have had other priorities being served, like public health. But then you wouldn't have had the excitement of House Democrats, Senate Democrats, Democrat POTUS candidates feeding their socialist base to satisfy their Trump antipathy with these ridiculous, largely fact-free efforts to remove the president from office and overturn the 2016 election. So this is Trump's Chernobyl. I ask again, what is it for House and Senate and presidential Democrat socialists? But if you lose, the devil gets your soul. Good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. And uh, what should be done, if anything, on fiscal policy by members of Congress and the president? to 
address the economic impacts of coronavirus on workers, uh, generally speaking, on employers, generally speaking? Uh, Should it be surgical? Should it be categorical? Uh, Should it be uh, focused on liquidity? Should it be focused on demand side, supply side? Should it be all of the above? Trying to get a handle on this as the uh, debates rage about what is sensible what should be done to provide the most benefit rather than what should be done to make it look like people are doing something. Big difference, often lost on politicians. For more on this, please to be joined by Aaron Yellowitz. He is a economics professor at the University of Kentucky and a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. He's co-authored a piece with uh, uh, Michael Saltzman from the Employment Policies Institute and the Wall Street Journal on the topic, at least part of it. We're pleased to be joined. Professor Yellowitz, thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. Thanks so much. Hope you're doing well. Uh, thank you. And um, one of the, uh, the, 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 well, the topic that you two gentlemen tackle in the Wall Street Journal is on this matter of paid sick leave, uh, that many states mandate uh, uh, paid sick leave. Uh, but what uh, the politicians are talking about is expanding that. And uh, you two argue, well, if you want to do that, that's fine, but don't do it as an employer mandate. Do it as uh, the responsibility of government uh, intervening to provide some emergency aid. So, Dan, we're in emergency times right now. This is something that in our lifetime might remind us just a little bit of, for example, 9-11 or the financial crisis in terms of its gravity. Uh, It's probably scarier than either of those two things. And there are really two big problems right now. There is a bona fide health crisis. And that health crisis is also leading to an economic crisis. The key thing to take away is that paid sick leave does not help the health crisis. And that is something that a lot of people are talking about, and they're trying to link the two. The way that they try and link it is by noting that there are a fair number of workers, especially entry-level workers, who don't have paid sick leave. So imagine that you were getting a burger in, you think of the really gross idea of someone coughing on your food and then spreading disease and so forth. There is some intuition behind that, but that doesn't work for coronavirus. For coronavirus, you can be asymptomatic for around five days or so and still be massively spreading the disease. And so the idea of trying to link paid sick leave to slowing the spread of disease has a natural intuition for some problems but not for this problem well one one other one way to to talk about it a little bit differently your point is well taken but uh uh one other approach and this was uh i think the suggestion of michael strain and scott gottlieb dr scott gottlieb over at the american enterprise institute is to uh, shield uh workers from distress particularly those on the lower uh, side of the uh, socioeconomic scale Uh, If you're going to send them home or have them work remotely or put them off for now because working remotely is not doable for a lot of hourly wage earners, it's just not that type of work, then provide a direct cash payment to them so that they can survive being off work for some extended period of time, whether they're symptomatic or asymptomatic. Absolutely. And to me, that feels much more like the role of social insurance than, in a sense, hitting an employer when that employer is down. In our Wall Street Journal piece, we talked about, for example, one restaurant where, unsurprisingly, Seattle, uh, where the restaurant was, has been decimated by coronavirus. And 
restaurants are laying off all of their workers or uh, sidelining them because no one's coming to restaurants. There's demand-side shock. Um, your workers could get sick. No one's going to go eat at the restaurant. And so basically ways of supporting people, especially in the hardest-hit areas, although I'm afraid that eventually all of America might be hard-hit, so perhaps not just Seattle, the West Coast, et cetera, but um, perhaps everywhere ultimately, but basically targeted relief or perhaps national relief, especially towards workers who have or towards individuals who have uh, difficulty making ends meet, seems like a way to get through the problems right now. One of the other uh, suggestions that has uh, come from President Trump and it's uh, been uh, received with some resistance, so it's still being kicked around, is uh, payroll tax relief, uh, eliminating the payroll tax on the employee side for the rest of the year for some indeterminate period of time. But the bottom line is yeah, relieving uh, workers of the payroll tax burden. But but I wonder what you I mean, it's, it's one thing to say, hey, look, any uh, any tax on somebody's income that any politician wants to relieve for any period of time. Well, that's good news because it's better in their pockets than it is in the government's pockets. But but I, I just find it unlikely to have the stimulative effect that's that's being advertised. So you can argue it's better in my pocket than in the government's pocket. But I don't think you can argue that it's stimulative so that it really addresses any part of the economic damage being done. Is that a fair statement? Yeah. Let me kind of be equal opportunity in talking about kind of um, a quote that actually I think is attributed to Ron Emanuel, which is uh, don't let a good crisis go to waste. Right. And what you can imagine is, is that people of all political stripe see a crisis and motivate their pets projects by that. Paid sick leave, on the one hand, I've argued, has nothing to do with the health crisis. What you've just argued correctly is that payroll tax cuts that probably affect not only low-income workers who might get evicted, but basically go far higher up the income distribution where we think people could perhaps better survive whatever is going to come, seems less effective than for example, cutting equal size checks to every American or something like that, uh, which is uh, the AEI proposal. And, and just like we've been through um, viral outbreaks before, we've been through these reactions to, to to economic crises, whether it's the result of a viral outbreak or a financial system meltdown, as it was a decade ago. So we know a little bit about what the net net results of some of these proposals are, and they're all sort of tinkering on the margins. It's sort, of, it's sort of press release politics to me. I agree. I think the, um, the it, it, I've not thought hard about policy X versus policy Y. You can imagine they have different stimulative effects. Um, one of the things which I agree with a lot, though, is one of the problems, which is not a stimulus problem per se, but basically a fear problem is everyone is scared to death right now. Right. And the reason they're scared to death is we simply don't know if we walk outside and go to the supermarket, just how risky is it? In many other instances, we at least have some idea. Now, eventually we'll know, but we don't know right now. And it's hard to imagine that cutting checks to people right now, that, of course, would help them not get evicted, uh, kind of stay on track with their bills. But in terms in terms of having kind of stimulus effects like going to restaurants and so forth, it's hard to imagine with the sort of underlying fear that is truly out there right now, where every day we're being um, uh, kind of just hit in the face with 
story after story that gets scarier and scarier, then, um, you know, it's hard to know that until we get that kind of uncertainty resolved, how we're going to get out of this. He is Aaron Yelowitz. He's an economics professor at the University of Kentucky and a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. Professor, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks so much. Be safe. You too. The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Well, one of the things that uh, the coronavirus outbreak has uh, perhaps helped us do is recognize those things that we have in common. We're all vulnerable to varying degrees to the coronavirus, to viruses in general, to sickness, to death. And so maybe we'll talk about human fragility a bit more in this context, as opposed to having to deal with the obsession of the cultural Marxist left who have infiltrated and effectively run pre-K through post-secondary education and uh, have moved off uh, or talk about uh, 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 a uh, virus mutating move from privilege to a theory called white fragility, white fragility developed by Robin DiAngelo, uh, who is a uh, sociologist of some sort, academic of some sort and uh, part of the race grievance industry to borrow a phrase from my friend, Bob Woodson going around the country, uh, teaching young people about uh, white privilege white fragility, uh, all under the rubric of whiteness studies uh, that advocate the notion that racism is inseparable from the reign of whiteness. And this is why, per the 1619 Project, racism is embedded in America's DNA through slavery, and there's nothing we can do about it, which, of course, prompts the question, if there's nothing we can do about it, then why should we even discuss it? For more on this topic, we're pleased to be joined by Jonathan Church, He's a government economist, a CFA charter holder, contributor to the Federalist, Quillette, and Arc Digital, author of the upcoming book, Reinventing Racism, Why White Fragility, quote-unquote, is the wrong way to think about racism. Jonathan, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Good morning. Thanks for having me on, Dan. So let's uh, start with definitions, at least as so presented by the Robin D'Angelo's of the world. What is white fragility? Uh, well, uh, as she defines it, um, directly out of her paper and her book, um, it's a state in which even a minimal amount of racial stress uh, becomes intolerable, uh, triggering a range of defensive moves. Now, this uh, definition arises in the context of talking about race and racism, and the underlying presumption in, um, I guess I call it the theory of white fragility, uh, although she defines it as one aspect of, of whiteness, um, but it re- arises in the context of talking about racism with white people um, and why it's supposedly so hard for white people to talk about racism. And so the idea in this uh, definition is that whenever you, uh, or when whatever D'Angelo and uh, her acolytes and, and other whiteness scholars and so on want to talk about racism, it's just very hard for white people to talk about it. And so they react defensively, 
um, you know, with emotions that she identifies as things like anger, shame, and guilt, and so on. Um, and she uh, extracts this from her many years of, you know, doing diversity trainings and so on. But um, so that, that's the way she would go about. So she, it. so, um, so, so, Robin D'Angelo says, and let's say, you know, put, put this in a setting. Robin D'Angelo says to me, "You're a white man. You're irredeemably racist." And I say, "No, I'm not." And that's an example of my white fragility. Basically, yeah. If you want to put it concisely, <laughs> okay. that that's the idea. Um, now, it, it's important to say uh, it, it all uh, relies on a certain understanding of what racism is. Um, and one of the things, one of the themes that she would talk about is uh, that we got to get away from this so-called good, bi- good, good, bad binary, um, which is you know that racism is simply committing bad acts and, and discriminating, um, you know, racial slurs, whatever. Um, but that racism is more insidious. It's more embedded. It's this this notion of whiteness. Um, and you were you were talking about the virus earlier, and it's sort of like this virus that infects every institution in in society. Now, it doesn't mean that in calling you a racist as a white person that you're a bad person. That's not that doesn't seem to be the point. It's that you're sort of as you say irredeemably racist because you have all these unconscious uh, implicit biases that you've been raised in a racist culture. Uh, that society is systemically racist, and, and um, you know what the the goal here is to start to get people to the white people to start thinking about racism in terms of this understanding of racism. Hence, the title of my book, uh, "Reinventing Racism." Um, it's this sort of new way of looking at racism as something that's endemic, systemic in society. Um, I'll argue that this has to do comes to what's called the reification fallacy, but, you know, no need for, like, fancy terminology at this point. Well, I want to just let, let me just hold you there because I want to uh, yeah. get to the implications uh, and the, the consequences of adopting this redefinition of racism. We'll do that with Jonathan Church, author of Reinventing Racism, Why White Fragility, quote unquote, is the wrong way to think about racism. Be back with more right after this. Fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. We're back with Jonathan Church. He is a government economist, contributor to the Federalist, Colette, Arc Digital, author of the book, upcoming book, Reinventing Racism, Why White Fragility is the Wrong Way to Think About Racism. And we're talking about uh, the theory, so let's get the getting the definition right, at least according to the purveyors of it, the uh, so-called scholars in the white studies discipline. And I want to get to the academic heft of that discipline uh, in a second. But but first, the agenda here and what the purpose, getting uh, white people uh, to think about them just being endemically racist, intrinsically racist. And so we need to think about uh, forever being in apology mode or forever ceding power to people who are not white because we're um, we're, we're fundamentally damaged and incapable of being positions of authority because we're innately racist. Is that it? Is that the point? Um. I think uh, that that is getting at it. Yeah, that's more. I mean, they'll object to that, and uh, D'Angelo would 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 object to that on on some nuanced level. 
Um, but I mean, that's essentially what it comes down to. And, and, you know, in a way that might resonate with, uh, listeners is, uh, essentially it's like a Kafka trap. Um, yeah, there is, there is a set definition of how racism works, which is that it's just, it's just, uh, uh, like a self regenerating process that everything you do and say and act and whatever is reinforcing white supremacy. And then the issue is to investigate how. So in one paper, she says whiteness studies takes for granted um, white privilege and instead of trying to prove it, seeks to reveal it, which is, of course, circular reasoning, which, you know, it's sort of assuming the assuming what you're trying to um, prove. But the issue is that we assume this is the case, that racism is is based on whiteness and white privilege and that white people have no idea how to address it. And then we work from there. And if you disagree with that, you're exhibiting white fragility. Right. So essentially, you have you have <laughs> right. a, a Kafka tra- you you have a Kafka trap where any um, denial or defensiveness is t- treated as evidence of your guilt. But but uh, but ultimately, um, that that you know that that has to have a point, which is why I say this is ultimately about well, you're disqualified from being in any position of authority. You're disqualified from being in an, an executive level over other people, particularly people of color. And it's not a, it's not your behavior. It, it's even beyond thought crime. It's you're hardwired this way. Thus, how could you be in a position of any authority or influence? Um, yeah, and I think that's a good segue into uh, another main point that I want to make is that this relies crucially on the idea of uh, implicit bias. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've been reading closely the psycho the psychology literature on this and uh, in, in interact or. Uh, corresponding with some psychology professors. And the more you learn, you re- the more you realize that the implicit bias paradigm in psychology is a mess, um, that uh, the creators of the implicit association test, uh, you know, wildly oversold the, the idea. And because it sort of resonated with, you know, the concerns about racism in society, it sort of took on a life of its own. But as we seem to research and investigate more and more, it's becoming clear that it's not clear what, in fact, implicit bias is. Like, it's hard to really define it. And then second, the IAT, the Implicit Association Test, um, is, is riddled with all sorts of problems. But it seems to have very little value, in, uh, if any, in predicting behavior. Uh, so even if you have lots of implicit associations in your mind, it doesn't necessarily indicate that you're going to behave in a certain way. And one psychology professor essentially described it to me as a science scientific Rorschach's uh, Rorschach test. test. Did I, yeah, yeah. yeah it's, did it, I pronounce it? Yeah, Rorschach. I mean, he, here's the thing about that, because I've been, I've been covering this for a couple of years, too, and I, I want to go back to a piece at Vox.com, left-wing outlet of all places, about implicit, uh-huh. uh, uh, the implicit <laughs> bias and the IAT test. It's junk science. This piece from German Lopez that I'm citing, Vox.com. Uh, IAT is not good for predicting individual biases based on just one test. It requires, at, at minimum, a collection of tests before it can really make any sort of conclusions. Calvin Lay, who is a postdoctoral fellow at Harvard, said it, yep. it can predict things in the aggregate, but it cannot predict behavior at the level of an individual. But it doesn't even matter about predicting behavior because what uh, White Fragility says, is your behavior is irrelevant. Uh, even if you're, if you're uh, you know, running around uh, uh, promoting uh, but promoting uh, the white fragility theory, you're still 
you're still beset by it. I mean, it does. You're you're saying your your behavior doesn't matter. So it doesn't, as you said, the Kafka trap. It doesn't matter what you do except full embrace, and ultimately it has to go to full deferral because what else is the point? Yeah, I mean, this is it's sort of the 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 just the um, the logically incoherent nature of the theory, which is, I mean, they would say, of course, your behavior does matter because it has effects on the world, and that what you need to do is start accepting all this and just, you know, go through this struggle session, which is a lifelong process of anti-racism, you know, whatever. But at the same time, it seems as though everything you do is simply reinforcing racism. Well, Uh, here's written in. Yeah, here's the other thing, though, too. Here's the other thing. So uh, this this is a piece is from 2017 that I was just citing. And you're talking about your conversations with psychologists. The psychology profession is a hard left profession in terms of its practitioners and their politics. And they basically said this is junk science, the IAT test. And yet this persists. The scientific quality of it, the rigor of it doesn't matter. The intellectual heft of it doesn't matter because you have all these implicit bias trainers, these diversity consultants that populate K through 12 public school systems around the country that they have offices at the collegiate level. You have implicit bias response teams at 230 plus universities. So the 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 the, the relevant or the accuracy of it, the uh, academic uh, heft of it, it doesn't even matter. It's too late. Yeah, that that unfortunately might be the case. It's I mean, it just makes a lot of intuitive sense at first, and so it's just kind of spread like wildfire. But I think recently there's just an emerging movement. In fact, I came across the paper. Uh, that came out uh, a month ago arguing we should just do away with implicit terminology altogether. So there seems to be an emerging uh, um, movement to sort of, you know, tone down the narrative and, and just sort of, but, you know, it's spread like wildfire, so who knows. Yeah, he is Jonathan Church. He is a contributor to The Federalist, Quillette, Arc Digital, author of the upcoming book, Reinventing Racism, Why White Fragility is the Wrong Way to Think About Racism. And he's got a good, good piece at thefederalist.com. He co-authored, which I will tweet out at Dan Prof Show as well. Jonathan, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for having me. Take care. The more you'll know, this is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show and uh, picking up on our conversation with Jonathan Church about white fragility, which is a uh, mutation of the virus of white privilege. These theories, these these are all strains of cultural Marxism to continue with our viral metaphor in these COVID-19 days. It starts at the collegiate system, comes down to the K through 12, pre-K through 12 system, and then radiates out into American culture. Let me give you an example of what I mean to bridge the metaphor back to COVID-19. This piece by a freelance writer in medium.com. How to tell if your privilege is showing amidst the COVID-19 pandemic. That's what we should be concerned about. Uh, We shouldn't be concerned about public health. We shouldn't be concerned about economic health. We shouldn't be concerned about the government response. We shouldn't be discussing aid packages. We should be doing some self-examination of our privilege in the wake of the spread of this virus. 
this is the poison that comes out of college campuses, K through 12 school systems run by these cultural Marxists, these race racketeers and identitarians more generally. Here's what you should be thinking of. If you're not afraid of COVID-19 or even if you get it because you're young and have a strong immune system that you're showing your privilege, you don't have to worry because you have really good health insurance privilege. You can work from home and or take paid vacations privilege. You just stockpiled a bunch of food and supplies privilege. You think this is just a big conspiracy designed to take down, insert the name of your most despised politician here. Privilege. Yeah, I'm not going to take these in order. Hopefully the silliness is self-evident. But, you know, the whole privilege thing, I mean, your station in life at any particular moment cuts a lot of different ways, doesn't it? Yeah, I'm younger and I perhaps have a better immune system than the elderly, better able to withstand the virus. So that's my privilege. Well, there's a lot of elderly who are retired uh, living off of, uh, say, a public sector pension, which I'm working to help finance. So is that their privilege? The cultural Marxists have to force feed everything through the lens of class and privilege and identity and turn every human being into a one dimensional cardboard cutout. Because to look at uh, all of these other contextual factors, you know, who's privileged in what ways? Well, that complicates things. Is a, a poor white family in Appalachia that doesn't have access to good health insurance, health care, at least close by, is uh, that family more or less privileged than a wealthy black family who lives uh, uh, in a, a well-to-do neighborhood in the city of Chicago, for example? The privilege cuts a lot of different ways, doesn't it? And even talking in the parlance of privilege to say you're privileged here and I'm privileged there advances this poisonous anti-intellectual philosophy. So don't do it uh, in the context of thinking about how we speak to one another and how we address complicated matters like the spread of the virus. Maybe now is a good opportunity since we're changing so many things, rethinking how, uh, for example, higher education is delivered. Maybe we could just keep it online, <laughs> reduce all the expense associated with room and board and bricks and mortar and food programs, meal programs. Uh, how about this, too? Uh, either remove or return to its narrow application, the words privilege and bullying. Have a great weekend. Have a coronavirus-free weekend and a mental health break, too, while you're at it. Enjoy your social isolation. Thanks for tuning in to The Dan Prop Show. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is The Dan Prof Show. You are fake news.